The next item of business is First Minister's questions, and I call Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. A year ago today, the United Kingdom became one of the first countries anywhere in the world to approve a COVID vaccine. Since then, 10 million jags have been delivered to people across Scotland. And I want to thank all the frontline staff, the armed forces and the volunteers who have made that happen. And at this critical moment, we need to continue the success of the vaccine programme to tackle this new variant. Earlier this week, the JCVI updated their guidance, meaning people can get their booster jag three months after their second jag rather than six months later. But last night, it emerged people who are now eligible for the vaccine were actually being turned away. First Minister, how was this allowed to happen? And has it now been resolved so no one else is refused a vaccine they are entitled to? First Minister. Well, let me also take the opportunity again today to thank vaccinators and vaccination teams across the country. Scotland currently has the fastest vaccination programme anywhere in the UK on first doses, on second doses, on third doses and crucially on booster doses. That's not a credit to this government, that is a credit to those working so hard in every corner of the country every single day. Uh, the government has a heavy responsibility to make sure that the pace of the programme doesn't just continue but accelerates and as I said on Tuesday we are very focused on that. Uh, let me explain the issue yesterday. I'm very sorry to anyone who was turned away from a vaccine clinic yesterday. When advice changes and the JCVI advice changed uh, on Monday uh, then because this is a clinical procedure there is a process of updating protocols and materials to make sure that everything is being done in line uh, with clinical protocol. In the normal course of events, uh, that is a process that would take around a week. Uh, that has happened now already, um, and uh, we have taken steps to ensure that that information has been cascaded uh, down to vaccination clinics everywhere uh, across Scotland. Um, and it is important that people uh, who had that experience yesterday, let me stress, it was a small number of people, uh, can go on to the website and rebook uh, their appointment uh, now if they are within what is now that three months or if they are over rather uh, that three month period. Um, so the vaccination programme continues to go well as I've said candidly on a number of occasions uh, particularly when advice changes very quickly. Uh, there may be uh, glitches in the system like we saw yesterday. We try to avoid that happening but when it does happen we take steps to rectify that as quickly as possible. Um, I think it's fair to say also I just uh, saw on social media this morning a prominent journalist in England uh, narrating exactly the same experience at a vaccine vaccine clinic uh, in England. So these are issues that we are all uh, dealing with right now, but we are all making sure that we are working hard to continue the excellent progress of this vaccination uh, programme. And let me remind people, Scotland currently has the fastest vaccination programme anywhere in the UK. The First Minister had time to check Twitter to see what was happening in England rather than trying to solve the problems exactly. here in Scotland. Because while her apology is very welcome and her backbenchers are shouting it's solved, her and the Deputy First Minister are going along the same lines that this was all an issue yesterday. Yet we are still hearing this morning of people turning up on Thursday morning to get the vaccine that they had booked and they were turned away. Turned away despite having an appointment. Now, we've looked at the latest available uh, updates from all health boards because the First Minister confirmed it had been cascaded to all clinics. 
Yet the situation is evolving as I came into the chamber, yet five health boards seem to be implementing the guidance as of now. Five are saying they plan to implement the new guidance soon, and four health boards are yet to provide an update at all. The First Minister has just said this has all been resolved, but as of this moment, it doesn't look that way, does it, First Minister? First Minister. Well, in terms of the comment about it being resolved, actually the guidance was issued by the Chief Medical Officer yesterday. It is the case that all health boards have that guidance and all health boards are expected to implement that guidance. And my advice to people across Scotland, if they are under the new JCVI advice eligible for a booster vaccination, they should book that booster vaccination and health boards will implement the new guidance. Now, I repeat the point, not to make uh, an excuse around this, but it's an important point of context. Vaccination, vital, the most vital thing we are doing right now is a clinical uh, process and a clinical procedure. It has to be backed up by protocols. Uh, when advice changes, those protocols have to change. That is a process that normally takes a lot longer than this. It has been done more quickly, rightly and properly because of the urgency of the vaccination programme. Um, and uh, that is a process that health boards are now implementing to make sure uh, that they are giving effect to that changed guidance. Uh, I absolutely accept that for anybody, uh, and it was a small number of people uh, who are finding themselves in this position, that is really frustrating and I am sorry that they are having that experience. Please go on and rebook. You will be vaccinated in line with the new advice. This is the biggest vaccination programme that has ever been undertaken. That's not just true of Scotland, that's true in every country administering uh, these vaccines right now. Uh, it is being administered right now alongside the flu vaccination programme. This is an enormous logistics exercise. I have never stood here and said that every single aspect of this uh, would go absolutely smoothly all of the time. And when problems arise, we rectify those and we rectify them quickly. But I make no apology, presiding officer, for yet again taking a step back from all of, of this or asking people to take step, a step back from all of this and recognise the enormous achievement that this vaccination programme is. And I don't say that to get any credit for the government. The credit belongs 100% to those who have designed this programme and to those who are, as we speak right now, delivering it in every part of Scotland. The fastest vaccination programme in the UK, 27,000 lives already, uh, according to a WHO study, saved in Scotland. Uh, this is a success story. I take very seriously my responsibility to make sure it continues to be a success story uh, so that we get as many people uh, vaccinated with boosters uh, as far and as fast as we, we can. And that's a, an obligation and a duty that this government takes seriously every single day. Thank you. So let's look at how seriously the government have taken this issue. And how this has unfolded is because of the communication from the First Minister's government has been a mess. On Monday, well, they don't like it, but let's just go through it. So on Monday, the Chief Medical Officer told everyone who is eligible to, and I quote, book an appointment and get vaccinated as soon as possible. That was on Monday. On Tuesday, the National Clinical Director told people on Twitter that if they turn up for a booster, they would get it. And also on Tuesday, the First Minister came to this chamber, stood at that podium and called on the public to schedule booster appointments based on the new three-month timescale. Now, she's now speaking about clinical processes and procedures, yet her words at the time were, 
I say to everyone who is in a similar position to me, try now, bring forward your booster appointment. That was Tuesday, yet we know the proper procedures hadn't been put in place, so people ended up being turned away. Surely this should all have been sorted before the First Minister told people to bring forward their appointments. Absolutely. First Minister. Well, no, the advice we gave is the advice. It's the advice I give again today. Um, and a very small number of people, a minority of people, and to each and every one of them, I understand that that is no comfort. And that's why I'm saying I'm sorry that they had that experience. But a, a small number of people in that timescale, when the protocols and the guidance was being updated, wrongly got turned away uh, from uh, the clinics. Uh, but many, many people, and I know some of these people personally, uh, got their vaccinations over the past couple of days uh, within that updated uh, guidance. So this is uh, one of these situations in a massive programme where the advice changed very quickly and very substantially, where, yes, I concede, a small number of people had an experience that they shouldn't have had. Uh, we are rectifying that, that is being rectified, and the advice remains. If you are eligible for your vaccination within the new guidance, go on and book your appointment. Uh, the guidance has been updated uh, and people will be vaccinated. So that is the position uh, and it is also the position that the success of this uh, programme cannot be denied. Uh, we are currently uh, vaccinated with booster vaccinations, and this is yesterday's figure, over 35% of the over 12 population ahead of England, ahead of Wales, ahead of Northern Ireland. Uh, we are not complacent about that. We are not resting on our laurels. But this vaccination programme is a success because of those right now working so hard across the country. And Douglas Ross and any other member is right to raise issues where uh, things go wrong or don't go as right as we want them to. But some of the language that I've heard applied to the vaccination programme over the past 24 hours does a real disservice to those who are working so hard every day right now to get these jags into people's arms. So please, let's not lose sight of the success that these people are delivering uh, for all of us right now in this fight against COVID. You know the First Minister is really struggling with her answers when she accepts that the question is correct. Well, I'm <laughs> delighted that my questions are appropriate to the First Minister. But what we have heard from every single one of her answers is she stood here on Tuesday and told people, get the vaccine booster appointment now. She told people to do it now on Tuesday. But it's clear at that point the First Minister and her government hadn't done the groundwork with health boards prior to her announcement. It led to confusion when the public needed clarity so we could accelerate this booster rollout. Yesterday, a spokesperson for the Scottish Government insisted we will confirm our approach to the vaccine deployment very soon. But we should already have a detailed plan already, right now. And that could have stopped this mess happening. The SNP Scottish Government needs to show the same urgency to rolling out the booster vaccines as was the case in delivering the first and second Absolutely. doses. There is a backlog of close to two million people across Scotland waiting for their jag. But I don't know why SNP members don't want to hear this. It's happening in all of our constituents. Colleagues, excuse me, Mr Ross. Can we afford members the courtesy of listening to their questions and responses carefully? Thank you. Mr Ross. 
the sight of SNP MSPs laughing and shouting down comments from all of our constituents is, I think, very, very telling. Because there is a backlog of close to 2 million people in Scotland waiting to get their jag. On these benches, we have been calling for the reopening of mass vaccination centres. Now, if not of the scale of the PNG Live or the Hydro, at least major clinics in town halls and buildings across Scotland. It's surely about time for the First Minister and her government to back our calls so we can roll out the booster vaccines as quickly as possible and guarantee that no one else gets turned away from having these vital jags. First Minister. Well, the small number of people who got turned away, um, I've set out the reasons for that and the action that has been taken was in the process of being taken, not just in Scotland but in other parts of the UK, to update guidance. The fact is, and Douglas Ross can go and check this in the public record, uh, the number of people over the past three days who got their booster vaccination, many of them within that updated guidance, uh, the majority, the vast majority. But, you know, I, I, I accept readily, um, because I know how important it is that we keep the pace and pick up the pace of this vaccination programme. Uh, that's why we consider uh, the Health Secretary speaking to health boards uh, on a daily basis right now. Many of them are putting on extra clinics already. There are large-scale uh, vaccination clinics in many parts of the country. Um, but what I would say to people is, Douglas Ross seems to think we're getting this somehow terribly wrong and uniquely wrong. Let me just share with people. Let me just share with people. We are all trying to work through uh, the, the numbers of people who are eligible for vaccination as quickly as possible um, and as soon as possible after the JCVI give us advice. Many people were already eligible by the time the JCVI gave us their original advice. But let me just set out for the public here, and this is publicly available information, on first doses uh, of the over 12 population, 909 percent in Scotland vaccinated. In England, 88.5 percent. Second doses uh, in Scotland, 82.6 percent vaccinated. In England, 80.4 percent. On boosters in Scotland, 36 percent of the over 12 population vaccinated. In England, 32.2. So are we going as fast as we need to go? We've got to pick up that pace further. But actually, is the approach we are taking in Scotland right now the most successful anywhere in the UK? Yes. And isn't it about time? Douglas Ross, if he won't give the government, and I'm not asking him to give the government any credit, not just in rhetoric, but in reality, gave these vaccinators working so hard right across the country the credit they deserve. Question number two, Anna Sarwa. Presenting officer, yesterday, Kimberly Darrick, who lost her daughter Millie four years ago, and Louise Lawrence, who lost her husband Andrew a year ago, said enough is enough, the government needs to decide whose side it is on, patients, families and staff or a failed health board leadership. Shamefully, the government chose the wrong side. When there is a serious infection, exactly, it's not a game, Mr Gray. Whenever there is a serious infection, an urgent alert is sent to the health secretary. It is called a Hyatt red warning. In the closing seconds of the debate yesterday, the Health Secretary said he had received three Hyatt Red notices from the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital since he became Health Secretary. After weeks of asking these questions, can the First Minister tell us what infections these three red warnings were for, what date they were received and what action the Government took? First Minister. 
Um, I'm going to come back to that because I certainly can provide information on that. But I want to, President Officer, my apologies if I uh, take a bit of time in this answer because these issues are really important to patients and their families across the country. Firstly, to Kimberly Darrick and Louise Lawrence, um, I absolutely understand uh, the questions uh, that they have uh, and their determination to get answers. I want to get them the answers to questions they have, and in their position, uh, I would be doing the same uh, as uh, the family member of somebody who had lost their lives. But Anna Sarwar has made a number, um, or, or raised a number of concerns about the Queen Elizabeth, and I just want to briefly um, go through these concerns. And in the process of doing that, I will answer the question uh, that Anna Sarwar has asked. Uh, firstly, the suggestion that the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital is somehow unsafe and that there's a higher risk of infection there than anywhere else. Evidence does not bear that out, whether that is hospital standardised mortality ratios eh, or published reporting of hospital-acquired infection. Eh, the Queen Elizabeth actually performs better than the national average and better than many other hospitals. Also, and this is an important point, Scotland as a whole has a lower prevalence eh, of HEI than the European average. Secondly, that there's a systemic problem in the Queen Elizabeth causing infections. That's a suggestion that has always been taken seriously. That's why the independent review was commissioned. That's why the case note review was commissioned. That's why the oversight board was established. That's why there is now a public inquiry and, of course, criminal investigations into some of these cases. Anna Sarwar derides all of that as process, but much of it is process he demanded. Uh, more importantly, all of that process has led to improvements on the ground. Uh, we take all of this seriously, but the hard fact, the very difficult fact, is despite best efforts to minimise the risk, no hospital anywhere in the world can eradicate completely the risk of infection in very sick uh, patients. Uh, individual cases, uh, I can't go into the detail of them, uh, presiding officer, but after FMQs last week, um, I uh, asked the health board to do an internal review um, and they have uh, advised me that based on the work they've done so far, uh, there is no child uh, with Aspergillus who had that noted on their death certificate as a, a direct or contributory cause of death. We are not resting on that. Health and Care Improvement Scotland has been asked to carry out a wider uh, review. Now, on the issue of the HIAT uh, assessments, and it's important to recognise what these are, uh, what these signify, presiding officer. When one of uh, these notices comes to government, I think Anna Sarwar gave the impression last week uh, that that signified a death in a hospital. That signifies two cases of infection uh, that are linked, at least two or more cases of infection that are linked in some way. Uh, in the adult Queen Elizabeth Hospital, uh, red and amber ones come to government. There were two red uh, and one amber from the 25th of November last year uh, to the 1st of December this year. Um, the dates of those were uh, 12th January this year, 7th May uh, this year, and the 23rd of June uh, this year. Um, I don't have the information on what infections, but I can get that and provide it. But the point I want to end on, presiding officer, and it goes to my first point about the suggestion that the Queen Elizabeth is somehow an unsafe hospital. Uh, there were those three alerts in relation to the Queen Elizabeth. In the same time frame, 45 were notified across Scotland as a whole. So let me just give some context around that. The Queen Elizabeth represents over 11% of all adult acute beds in Scotland, but less than 7% of these HIAT notifications. So, Presiding Officer, we take all of these concerns very seriously. 
But I really think it is also important that we don't have politicians coming to this chamber um, and trying to suggest and to erode confidence in the quality of care that is provided by dedicated clinicians in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital every single day. Anna Sarwar. I, th I think it's worth noting that we had a debate in this Parliament yesterday where the Health Secretary had the opportunity to bring these facts to the Parliament and didn't. And the First Minister didn't bother even turning up to the vote, uh, the debate. I didn't even bother voting in the debate yesterday. I think it's also important to note that uh, what we're talking about is process, but actually where is the accountability and responsibility that comes with those processes as well? To this day, not a single person has been held accountable. And I'm pleased the First Minister referenced the need for the Hyatt warning to not crucially just be about deaths, but be about infections. Because I'm agreeing with you, First Minister, but I think you need to understand what's happening in this health board. Because clearly either you're not being told the truth or you are hiding the truth. And I prefer to believe the first. What happens with the... And I prefer to believe the first. I think the health board's not telling you the truth. And I think that's really, really serious. And Jean Freeman recognised that in the last parliament, as we're talking about infections, not deaths. So when these infections happen, they should be notified so the government can take the necessary action. So let me give you an example. So while the First Minister hides behind process and a public inquiry that could take three more years, patients are still getting infections and lives are still being lost. I have raised cases of aspergillus and stenotrophomonas in this parliament. Those cases should trigger higher red warnings. But yesterday I spoke to a mother who in recent weeks tragically lost her six-month-old baby. The child was in an intensive care unit at the Children's Hospital at the Queen Elizabeth University campus. She shared the death certificate with me. Listed as a cause of death is serratia, another deadly bacteria linked to water and the hospital environment. From the indication from the First Minister, that didn't trigger a higher red warning. Serratia a deadly bacteria linked to water and the hospital environment. That mother asked me to raise this case today, but in her words, I have no confidence in this health board. I have no confidence action will be taken. It is inevitable it will happen again and other patients will be affected. Another child's death, another grieving family. What's it going to take before action is taken? First Minister. Well, can I, I think, make three points here in uh, making them uh, very genuinely, because these are such important issues, and my you know, deepest condolences are with the, the mother that Anna Sarwar has referenced uh, here today. The Hyatt system um, is in place, and, and let me just be clear, the Hyatt system is about uh, the government being alerted to cases of infection. When that doesn't get triggered, that doesn't mean to say no action is taken on individual cases of infection. The reason the HIAT system it triggers an alert to government on the basis of two or more linked infections is because that is indicative not of individual isolated cases of infection, and I'll come back to that in a second, but of a potential infection outbreak, which then should trigger a higher level of response. Now, the reason I'll come back to isolated cases of infection, and I I find this difficult to say because it is such a hard fact, particularly if you are the parent or the relative of somebody who has died of an infection or got an infection in hospital, even if that didn't contribute to the person's death. I know what that feels like. My, my grandmother uh, got an infection in hospital many years ago before her death. Uh, 
basically, though, the, the, the reality here for every hospital across the world is despite the best efforts and the highest quality of care, it is not possible to prevent every case of infection in very sick patients with compromised immune systems. So that's why that system is in place. Of course, we review systems like that all of uh, the time. Secondly, on process, um, I'm not hiding behind anything. I'm certainly not hiding behind process. The processes that are in place are important. And I repeat the point I made earlier on, Anna Sarwar called for many of these processes, including the public inquiry. We are not waiting until that concludes to do anything. So if we look at the recommendations of the independent review of the fabric and maintenance of the hospital that was commissioned by the government, or if we look at the recommendations from the oversight board, I think in the first case, 98% of those recommendations have been implemented. In the second, I think it's 88%. There has been significant investment in the affected wards, in specialist ventilation, in uh, water systems, for example. So there is action being taken all of the time. And I come back to the uh, point I made earlier on. Every case of infection is, in se is serious. The Queen Elizabeth, actually, when we look at all of the evidence here, has a lower incidence of infection than many other hospitals. And of course, it's a big hospital providing very specialist care. And lastly, presiding officer, I know I'm taking time on this, but it is so important. This issue of a, a cover-up, and this was a an issue uh, raised uh, and addressed in the letter that 23 senior clinicians uh, wrote yesterday. Uh, I know from my experience as Health Secretary, from my experience as First Minister, from my experience as a citizen and at times a user uh, of the health service, uh, I know how seriously clinicians take their duty of candour and honesty to patients. The government takes that so seriously that we changed the law to make duty of candour a legal obligation. Uh, so I have confidence in clinicians. If the allegation is, as it appears to be, that health boards, or in this case, Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board, is pressurising uh, or bullying or telling clinicians not to be honest with patients, then my message, not to Anna Sarwar, but directly to every clinician across Greater Glasgow and Clyde, across the country, is if they feel they are in that position, they should raise that in any way they see fit, and they should come to me directly, because that is not acceptable and would not be acceptable. So these are serious issues, uh, but let's treat them seriously, as this government does, but let's not erode confidence in a hospital providing a high-quality of care, as sending out photographs of mould without saying they were from four and two years ago had been rectified. Uh, and of course, the report that included these photographs in the first instance made clear that they did not affect patient care. That's what Anna Sarwar did yesterday. I think that is crossing the line from raising legitimate issues to trying to undermine confidence in a hospital and in hardworking clinicians. Anna Sarwar. I listened to what the First Minister um, said, and I'll address um, a couple of those points, but can I first of all say that she should listen to the words of Dr Christine Peters, who was one of the whistleblowers uh, at the start of this uh, crisis. And what did Dr Christine Peters say? Do not gaslight the entire staff base of the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in order to protect the jobs of a few at the top. No one is questioning their confidence in the frontline staff. What we are questioning is the confidence in the leadership of this board. This fight is as much about the staff as it is about the families and the patients. And I say to the First Minister, I accept that we can't stop every single hospital-acquired infection, but given what we know has happened at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, that should show that there needs a grip on the situation 
If it was me, I'd be saying to the health board, every single time there's a serious infection, I want to know about it so we can make sure we're taking the necessary action so we don't make the same mistakes again. Not trying to hide behind some process. And that's exactly, again, what is happening in this case. Why are you not getting a grip off this health board so we know every single time there is a serious infection related to the water and the hospital environment so action can be taken? The problem here is not those asking the difficult questions, but those making the wrong decisions. Now, the First Minister says that uh, taking the steps of moving uh, the health board into stage five is a step too far. But in 2018, she escalated NHS Tayside into emergency measures. She sacked the chief executive and the chair, and that was for financial mismanagement. But in Greater Glasgow and Clyde, children have died and are still dying, yet not a single person has been held accountable. So no more hiding behind process, no more blaming of staff, no more waiting for the findings of a public inquiry in the distant future. Families can't wait that long. You made the wrong choice yesterday. And as we have heard today, there are still patients dying in the hospital after contracting infections. I shared a new case today. So for the sake of the staff working tirelessly to save lives, for the sake of the families who have lost loved ones, for the sake of patients in Glasgow and across Scotland, and for the sake of all those that have had to share the heartbreaking stories, please listen, act, and do the right thing. First Minister, Presiding Officer, I'll, I'll try to cover uh, all of the points that were raised there under three broad headings as briefly as possible. Uh, I'm probably betraying my age here. I'm never entirely sure what gaslighting exactly uh, means in practice, but I am not blaming staff. I am not blaming staff. Nobody is blaming staff. But the letter that was written uh, to me and to the Health Secretary yesterday was from uh, clinicians, clinical voices, uh, head of medicine, medical directors, people uh, who are part of the, the clinical community. And the point is this, and this is not blaming staff, this is recognising a reality. Uh, when patients, individual patients or their families are communicated with, it's not a health board that communicates with them, it is clinicians. And I have the utmost confidence uh, in the way in which clinicians do that and the seriousness with which they take a duty of candour and, and honesty to patients. The point I am making, though, is that if any clinician considers that they are being pressurised uh, to do something different, bullied into doing something different or told to do something different, they should not hesitate uh, to bring that directly to me or to the Health Secretary. We will not tolerate that. Um, the second point is about uh, this process, hiding behind process. Uh, the public inquiry was something Anna Sarwar called for. It's right and proper that that happens. Um, there is a criminal investigation ongoing into certain cases. But if you take the independent review and the oversight board, important pieces of process that led to many recommendations that have been implemented to real investments in the water system and the ventilation system at the hospital. And I come back to this point because it will lead me into my last point. The Queen Elizabeth, in, in saying this, I am not uh, minimising the seriousness of every infection, but the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, in terms of published statistics around infection, in terms of standardised mortality data, actually performs better than the national average. That says some of the actions that have been taken are working. And clinicians in that hospital deliver a high quality of care across a very, very complex range uh, of treatments. And this comes to the final point, presiding officer, is the sack the board cry. This is really serious. And I think these chants, there is a criminal investigation 
underway. Presiding officer, Anna Sarwar is, from a sedentary position, asking me who has behaved criminally. That is what a criminal investigation yeah. is intended, whether anybody has, and if so, who and in what way. That is a really irresponsible thing to shout across the chamber. But the final point is this. If I thought, if I thought for a minute that simply removing the health board would change anything on the ground in the Queen Elizabeth, or if that was the problem and there weren't improvements because the improvements were being blocked by the health board, I would do that without hesitation. But removing a health board, given everything I've said about the work that's been done, in the middle of a pandemic and a vaccination programme would not be the responsible thing to do. The responsible thing for government to do is to work with the health board to continue to make the improvements, to continue to ensure that in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and in every hospital across the country, high quality care is provided. And that's what we do every day. Before we move on to supplementary questions, I wish to make members aware that First Minister's questions will continue today until 12.55 approximately, and I call Kenneth Gibson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, the Ardrossan to Brodick ferry regularly has to berth overnight at Brodick due to the poor state of the Ardrossan Harbour fenders, leading to the cancellation of the 7am service to Arran, a sailing that carries goods, workers and contractors to the island. The next sailing arrives in Brodick at 10.40am, impacting on the working day. Basic maintenance is being neglected by peel ports, privatised by a previous Tory government, a company that has raked in millions in passenger fees over the years. So does the First Minister agree that some of these fees should be retained by CalMac until such times as offenders are repaired or replaced? First Minister. Well, I know payment of birthing dues is a matter between the ferry operator, uh, CalMac, uh, ferries and the harbour authority um, and it's the responsibility of the statutory harbour authority to ensure uh, harbours are well maintained and fit for purpose we are investing heavily in ports and vessels uh, to support and improve the ferry services um, as part of the wider infrastructure investment plan that we have uh, outlined already i'll ask the uh, transport uh, minister to uh, write to kenny gibson with some more uh, detail about these investments and also the work we are doing and transport scotland is doing with stakeholders including peel ports group north Ayrshire county and the Arran Ferry Group to improve services and infrastructure, particularly on the Arran route. Rachel Hamilton. Thank you. Presiding Officer Nicola Sturgeon is the First Minister of Scotland, which includes responsibility for the Scottish borders, not just the central belt. And outrageously, it took until Tuesday of this week for the First Minister to acknowledge the devastation caused by Storm or Arwen on Twitter. The First Minister must not think it acceptable that a frail and vulnerable 87-year-old constituent of mine has had to sleep in front of the fire, a coal fire, in a chair, without power or heat this week. We all know that energy companies have serious questions to answer, but surely the First Minister must agree that the Scottish Government have a responsibility to act quickly in these life-threatening situations. First Minister. Yes, I do. And the Scottish Government has been heavily engaged um, in this all week. Uh, the Scottish Government Resilience Committee has met on several occasions. I chaired uh, the most recent of uh, those meetings just uh, yesterday. Um, there have been extensive uh, discussions uh, on a daily, uh, several times a day uh, basis with the power companies. Can I take the opportunity, Presiding Officer, to express my uh, sympathies to everybody who has been impacted by Storm Arwen? Uh, the storm was almost unprecedented, certainly unprecedented in recent 
recent uh, memory in its severity and the impact of the storm uh, has been extreme and many, many thousands of people uh, have suffered a very difficult experience as a result of that and some are still uh, suffering that difficult experience. Um, in terms of the uh, connection, uh, power connection issues, um, at the start there were more than 200,000 customers off uh, supply. Uh, as of this morning, and this is a, a moving picture, obviously there are around uh, 3,300 uh, still not uh, reconnected to supply. Uh, the power companies are working intensively on that, and the estimate is that it may take until the end of this week to get absolutely everybody uh, back on power supply. Uh, there is a lot of welfare support being provided, and again, the government is working with uh, resilience partnerships to ensure that that is happening as uh, it should be. Uh, this has been a really difficult uh, time. I think there are lessons for all of us to learn. The Scottish Government will lead through our resilience arrangements uh, a lessons learned exercise once uh, the impact has been addressed. I think one of the lessons is around communication. Um, I know the power companies have been working uh, extensively and intensively to get people reconnected. The damage has been extreme, but I think there are lessons everybody can learn and we will certainly ensure that that happens once, of course, everybody is back on power and the immediate impacts have been addressed. Monica Lennon. Thank you, Presiding Officer. For all of us who have lost a loved one in a care home during the pandemic, Anne's law will come too late, including for my constituent Anne Duke, the inspiration behind the campaign. Loneliness and isolation continue to impact the quality of life of many care home residents, despite the Open with Care policy on visiting. Can the First Minister reassure people that the Anne's Law consultation report is still on track to be published this month? And when will the government deliver its promise on Anne's Law? First Minister. We are absolutely committed to introducing uh, Anne's Law. Um, the public consultation on uh, Anne's Law closed on the 5th of November. Uh, officials are currently working through the responses uh, to consider the impact uh, that they might have on how, how we uh, go about implementing Anne's Law. It's really important that we consider uh, the views from the public uh, properly, uh, but we intend to publish uh, the responses in the coming weeks um, and take forward uh, our plans to implement this as soon as possible. Um, Loneliness and isolation has been a particular issue for many people over the course of the pandemic and of course in particular for those in care homes. Uh, we continue to support a range of initiatives to help address uh, loneliness and isolation but of course all of us can help uh, reduce the impact of COVID by following uh, all of the protections in place so that we can continue to keep the pandemic under control and therefore support the greater uh, and increasing return to normal life which in itself uh, will go a long way to helping address the root causes of some of the loneliness and isolation that people have suffered. Question number three, Alex Cole-Hamilton. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister when the Cabinet will next meet. First Minister. Alex Cole-Hamilton. I'm very grateful for that reply. Presiding Officer, this morning, uh, the Office of National Statistics published figures to show that 99,000 Scots now suffer from long COVID. I asked the First Minister about this at the start of October. Eight weeks and 20,000 new patients later, and we are still nowhere. Where are the long COVID clinics? Where are the community nurses delivering support into the homes of sufferers? Where is the financial guidance and financial certainty for employees who just don't know what they're going to be paid at the end of the, each month, including in the Scottish Government? Long COVID sufferers need new hope. I said as much to the Finance Secretary in negotiations around the budget yesterday. So can I ask this, uh, the First Minister? 
year, does she recognise the plight of long COVID sufferers, that her government's response has so far been unequal to the challenge? And will she meet that with a significant and substantial response in next week's budget? First Minister. I absolutely recognise uh, the plight of those who are suffering long COVID. Um, it's a, a dreadful uh, condition. Um, it's often a complex condition and clinicians and, and scientists are still, of course, working to understand exactly uh, how that impacts on, on people. Um, I don't accept that our response uh, has not been equal to the, the scale of the challenge, but I do absolutely accept that our response and the response of all governments will have to considerably scale up um, and adapt as we learn more about long COVID. Uh, we have, of course, published already an approach paper which set out 16 different commitments to improve care and support for people with long COVID in Scotland, and that is important. These commitments are already backed by uh, a £10 million long COVID support fund, so there is already a uh, financial commitment there. Um, I fully expect that there will be a requirement for additional financial support, not just in this budget, but perhaps for years to come as we continue to understand and respond uh, to long COVID. I can't, uh, and I'm not going to preempt uh, the budget uh, next week, but of course the budget uh, will include a significant increase in the funding of the National Health Service and as part of the many obligations on the shoulders of the National Health Service, responding to the needs of those with long COVID is an important one. Question number four, Karen Adam. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister whether she will provide an update on the advances of the Scottish that the Scottish Government has made in relation to the British Sign Language National Plan. First Minister. Uh, the Scottish Government published the British Sign Language Progress Report on the 27th of October. It outlined progress being made towards implementing the BSL National Plan. It outlines progress on a range of fronts, including education, BSL English interpreting and public life. The report outlines how the Scottish Government has funded BSL partnership organisations to engage and support public bodies with their plans and notes important developments, such as the decision that our next census will ask, can you use BSL for the first time? Significant progress, I think, has been made towards making the country more inclusive and supportive of BSL users. Uh, the language enjoys a higher profile than ever before in our public life and is even more, uh, ever more visible in media and communications. And I think that is a really important development. Karen Adam. I thank the First Minister for her response. President Officer, tomorrow is International Day of Persons with Disabilities and there's been tremendous strides in deaf and BSL visibility since the BSL Scotland Act 2015. I've even had feedback from the British Deaf Association that many across the UK were even tuning into the Scottish Government's COVID briefings, as the UK Government did not provide an interpreter service. And I'm sure we were all moved by the powerful performance on Strictly Come Dancing when Rose Ailing Ellis, when she was dancing and the music stopped. It was an incredibly poignant moment. But we still have more to do to open the doors for the deaf community. Can the First Minister give an indication of what work is being done in terms of the BSL National Plan to ensure that the very welcome increasing demand for BSL training and education is met? First Minister. Well, can I firstly uh, recognise that tomorrow is International Day uh, for Persons with Disabilities, and I think that is a, an important reminder of our obligations uh, to people living with disabilities to ensure that we are making our countries, our societies as inclusive as possible. Um, I think it's also uh, fair to say, and I'm going to take the opportunity to say it, that Karen Adam herself is a shining example of somebody using her public platform to raise the profile of BSL, and I want to pay tribute to her for doing that. Um, 
and there's no doubt the, these things matter and uh, the really uh, moving uh, moments on Strictly Come Dancing a couple of weeks ago uh, when uh, Rose took the opportunity of that platform uh, to again raise awareness uh, I think is something that will live in people's memories for a, a long, long time. Um, let me also just take the opportunity, President Officer, to say thank you publicly to the BSL interpreters who have helped me communicate with the country uh, over this COVID pandemic. They have done a huge, uh, we owe them a huge debt of gratitude to making sure that our public messages uh, reached as many people as possible. Uh, in terms of the specific question, we're working to expand opportunities around education. We're updating guidance on the appropriate qualifications for teachers of children and young people with sensory impairments, including a BSL qualification, uh, and through the inclusion of BSL in the one plus two languages, policy, there are now more opportunities to learn BSL and the government through the Scottish Funding Council is also continuing to invest in BSL education and training in higher education. Question number five, Tess White. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reports that the use of antidepressant medication among children has increased by more than 80% over the last 10 years. First Minister. Uh, well, we're committed to ensuring that all children and young people can access the right support for their mental health without stigma, uh, including medication where this is clinically considered the most appropriate intervention. Uh, the numbers of children and young people being prescribed antidepressant medication um, is low. Public Health Scotland data show that in the 0 to 19 age category, 1.8% of children and young people were prescribed uh, medication. Uh, medication will be one aspect of treatment alongside psychological therapy or other therapeutic interventions. Uh, it's not the only treatment option for children and young people who require support. We're continuing to improve access and invest in other services, uh, such as uh, funding to ensure that every secondary school in Scotland has access to counselling and funding for community-based mental health and wellbeing services as part of our focus on early intervention and prevention. Tess White. First Minister, infants under the age of four are being prescribed antidepressants. The number of five to 14-year-olds on antidepressant medication has risen massively in recent years, and these are alarming statistics. This is a hidden mental health pandemic. We know early intervention and prevention are key. What action is the Scottish Government taking to extend community-based mental health services for children and young people, to support youth work services, and to ensure there is an adequate pipeline of qualified counsellors for schools. First Minister. Um, these are really important issues and I uh, think we should all, uh, as I know uh, the member does, treat them really seriously. Firstly, and I think this is a really important point and I, I'm sure the member will agree with me uh, on this, uh, prescribing uh, in this uh, instance or in any instance is a clinical decision uh, and it's important that prescribing uh, decisions are taken by clinicians based on their judgment of what is in the interest of the patient. And when it comes to the prescribing of antidepressants, whether that is for children or for adults, it's really important that we don't talk about that in a way that stigmatises the use of antidepressants. Because for some people, for some people, that will be the correct intervention, even if only for a period of time and therefore we need to remember that when we're, we're having these discussions. What is really important and I think this lies behind Tess White's question and it is absolutely legitimate, what we mustn't have is a situation where people are being prescribed antidepressants because there is a lack 
of more appropriate alternatives. And I think that is where the responsibility on government is very serious, which is why the work I uh, referenced in my earlier answer, we are trying to shift the focus on child and adolescent mental health into uh, a much more early intervention space. So we are investing in counsellors in schools, in early intervention uh, mental health and wellbeing services in communities so that there are alternatives and where somebody is prescribed antidepressants, it is genuinely because that is the right intervention for them at that time. Question number six, Paul O'Kane. Uh, to ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to the report towards a Scotland that cares, a new national outcome on care for the National Performance Framework by the University of the West of Scotland, supported by Oxfam Scotland, Carer Scotland, Scottish Care, the Scottish Women's Budget Group and One Parent Family Scotland. First Minister. Well, this is a timely report and we will consider it fully. The views of carers will be heard as part of the next review of the National Performance Framework, which is due to start next year. Uh, we're committed, of course, to creating a national care service to increase the quality of care and improve fair work in social care uh, and are currently improving pay terms and conditions for social care workers. Um, carers make a significant, a highly significant and valuable contribution to our society and the well-being of the country. Uh, that is, for example, why we introduced the Carers Allowance Supplement, uh, providing over £230 twice a year on top of Carers Allowance to support around 91,000 unpaid carers. We provided an additional payment last year and will do so again this month. We're also providing an additional £28.5 million for local carer support this financial year. But let me take the opportunity to put on record my thanks to carers all over the country and to recognise uh, that this uh, period of the the pandemic has made what they already do and deal with even more difficult. Paul O'Kane. I thank the First Minister for her answer. The past 20 months of pandemic uh, have highlighted the vital importance of all forms of care, whether paid or unpaid. Yet those who look after someone, overwhelmingly women, remain badly undervalued and unrewarded, with many living in poverty as a result. So does the First Minister agree that we must now make a long-lasting and deep commitment to change by locking in a new national outcome focused on better valuing and investing in all forms of care and monitoring progress, and that would give a real focus and show how we value care and carers across Scotland. First Minister. Uh, so the National Performance Framework, uh, before I ad address that specific, can I say I absolutely agree that the pandemic has taught us lots of things, but it has also taught us, uh, particularly taught us, uh, the importance of care uh, and the need to value and better value all those, whether in an unpaid or a paid uh, basis, uh, all those who provide care ac across the country. Um, in terms of the National Performance Framework, I think that is a, a very reasonable point to make. Uh, the framework will be reviewed next year and we will have the opportunity to consider a specific national outcome on care within the context of that wider review. The only other thing I would add to that, of course, is the national performance framework is intended to be a cross-cutting uh, framework. Um, so it's also important not to see anything in isolation that we capture uh, all of the different things that will impact on care within that. Uh, it's also really important that we do value those who provide care, the National Care Service, and the work to establish that will be very important. Uh, we need to pay those who work in our social care service more and we need to even although we do more to support unpaid carers than I think probably any government in the UK we have more yet to do not just financially but in terms of ensuring respite support and wider support for unpaid carers who do so much for their own loved ones but do so much to help the well-being of the country as well. Question number seven Graeme Simpson. Thank you very much. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to the Union Connectivity Review. 
First Minister. We only saw the Union Connectivity Review when it was published on Friday, so understandably we will take some time to consider our response. Um, I don't think there's much in this review for Scotland, uh, to be perfectly honest, although we are very happy to uh, discuss and consider uh, what benefits uh, there might be. Uh, what there is in it is an attempted power grab, taking decisions around priorities away from Scottish ministers, uh, with a suggestion of funding improvements on one route being dangled uh, in front of us. So if UK ministers really want to be helpful, uh, why don't they just deliver the funding needed for infrastructure investment in line with the established budgetary mechanisms for Scotland so that this democratically elected parliament can determine our own spending priorities in line with the devolution settlement? Graham Simpson. Well, it, it's perfectly obvious from that answer that the First Minister hasn't read a word of the review because it does nothing, nothing that she is suggesting that it does. Um, I was pleased to hear from the Transport Minister earlier who, unlike the First Minister, is prepared to have talks with the UK Government on the funding for the A75. That would be a good thing. Actually a theme throughout the review, if the First Minister bothers to read it, is that both governments should work together. And on that note, it says it says that both the UK and Scottish Government previously agreed to develop options to support a rail journey time between Scotland and London of three hours. They were both working on it. But we know that Transport Scotland officials were told to stop working on that. They were ordered to stop. Will the First Minister now allow them to restart that vital piece of work? First Minister. Uh, that, that, uh latter allegation there is just not the case, so I'm not going to engage uh, further in that. I, I too heard the Transport Minister and uh, agree entirely. I said in my original answer, of course we will discuss uh, with the UK Government how we uh, get benefit from uh, the connectivity review. But let's not forget, it's not that long ago that we've been told this connectivity review was going to deliver a bridge from Scotland to yeah. Northern Ireland. Um, and that was the big headline grabbing commitment that seems to just have gone by the wayside. And on the on, you know, for example, the A75, there's no specific commitment to funding in that. So, yes, we will, we will discuss that. But what a really important thing we have to uh, determine here is that these so-called promises actually uh, are delivered in, in practice. Because what we often find is either that the promises don't materialise, uh, to go on another issue, uh, earlier this week, and it was put to, I think, the Deputy First Minister in the Chamber, the Prime Minister tweeted that the UK Government was ready to help the Scottish Government in our response to uh, the storm damage. Uh, yesterday, the Treasury confirmed to us, no, no, that didn't actually involve any financial uh, support. So we often have to scratch, scratch below the surface. The other, thing, the other thing we need to check is that it is additional funding, that what they are giving us with one hand is not being taken away from us with the other hand, because that very often turns out to be the case. So yes, we will discuss these things, uh, and hopefully we can come to a position where there is mutual benefit to be had there. But you know, I don't think it should be a controversial uh, principle in Scotland to say, why don't we just do these things in line with the devolution settlement, in line with the established funding mechanisms, rather than have a UK government, for political reasons, trying to go over the head of the democratically elected Scottish Parliament. I return to supplementaries and I call Siobhan Brown. 
Thank you, Presiding Officer. A new report from the ONS has shown that the Scottish economy has suffered a 6% hit as a result of Brexit, while Northern Ireland has prospered in the EU single market. Does the First Minister agree that this report lays bare that Scotland is paying an outrageous price for being ignored by the Tory UK government as they impose Brexit against our will and that Westminster control is anything but a disaster for Scotland? First Minister. Yes, I, I, I do agree. And um, I'm not sure whether uh, the Tories, uh, while Siobhan Brown was asking that really important question, uh, were laughing or groaning in despair. Uh, but they were certainly making uh, lots of noise because they don't like the reality of this being pointed out to them. Uh, Brexit has uh, been a democratic uh, insult and offence to Scotland because it has been imposed upon us against our will. But what we are now finding out, including in the study that Siobhan Brown uh, has cited in the Chamber today, is that the economic impact of Brexit in Scotland is severe and is likely to become more severe. And actually, we're one of the worst hit parts of the UK. Uh, conversely, Northern Ireland, that's managing to stay within uh, the European single market is not suffering uh, that damage. So that tells us uh, that having these things done to us is not just undemocratic, it does us real damage, which is why the sooner we get all powers into the hands of this parliament through independence, the better, so that no longer do we have to put up with things like Brexit. I call Miles Briggs. Officer, um, evidence given by bereaved parents to the Scottish Hospital's public inquiry is now to be kept secret after legal applications by the Scottish Government and Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board. This is a hugely concerning development and risks undermining the confidence of the public inquiry. Now, the First Minister has already said she will not tolerate cover-ups or secrecy from health boards, but in this case her own officials have acted to ensure this evidence is heard in secret. So can I ask the First Minister, beyond the public inquiry, what steps will be taken now for these allegations made by parents, bereaved parents, to be fully investigated by Police Scotland? First Minister. Well, Mills Brigg is just wrong in his characterisation of this, and I would suggest that anybody who wants to understand uh, the reality here should go and read uh, the, the judgment, the decision of Lord Brodie um, in uh, this case. Can I say the family uh, here have given their full evidence uh, to the inquiry, so that information is all available uh, to the inquiry. And of course, it is entirely for the police uh, and the Crown Office to determine what information they uh, need to access in uh, line with any criminal investigation. Uh, the decision here, as is made uh, clear in the published legal note from Lord Brodie, uh, was all about making sure uh, that there was fairness towards all of those with an interest in this inquiry and the individuals uh, who had no opportunity to challenge allegations were not put in the position of having those allegations uh, publicly made. Uh, interestingly, um, the family's own counsel uh, conceded that the applications were well merited and did not oppose uh, those applications. Uh, now, of course, Lord Brodie can decide at any point uh, to overturn uh, that decision or, or reconsider it. That is entirely a matter for the judge. But the reasons for this restriction order are fully set out in his published legal note, and I think anybody who reads it will see quite clearly the reasons for them. Ross Greer. 
Thank you, Presiding Officer. I have been contacted by constituents employed at City of Glasgow College who are concerned by college management's proposals to cut facility time for their union representatives by more than a third. This is despite a significant increase in the demand for the support provided by staff unions due to the pandemic. I believe the Further Education Minister wrote to college management about this issue a number of weeks ago, but they are still refusing to engage seriously with staff unions to discuss their proposal. Can I therefore ask the First Minister if she agrees that it is essential that staff union representatives are given the time that they need to provide adequate support for their members? First Minister. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, absolutely. Obviously, uh, with uh, apologies, I do not know all of the detail uh, in relation to the City of Glasgow uh, College uh, case, although if the Further Education Minister has written, then clearly that is something uh, he uh, has already had an involvement in. The management of colleges is for them. They are the employers of staff. But let me say unequivocally, as I have said many times before, facility time uh, for uh, trade union officials is an important part of ensuring that trade unions can do their job of representing and standing up for their members. Uh, so it is really important, I think, for any employer. And it's, a responsibility the Scottish Government as an employer takes seriously ourselves to, is to make sure that the facility time is there for union officials to do their job. So I would very much hope that the College uh, will meet uh, with trade unions and that this can be resolved satisfactorily. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's questions. Point of order, Sandesh Gulhani. I heard from the First Minister that uh, just earlier that the vaccinations and people will not be turned away, but I've been contacted just now uh, to be told that in Stirling, patients indeed are being turned away. So will the First Minister please get a grip on the situation? Yeah. Mr Gilhani, that is not a point of order. Your comment is on the record. Thank you.